Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 5 of SAS PH Inside Out. I'm Christina, and I'm the customer advisory for the government industry. In this episode, we decided to combine both the morning and the afternoon Q&A sessions of our government forum. It's one and a half hours long, but it's very, very interesting. So I suggest you start listening now. Anyway, it's the weekend, so enjoy. Delivered to where he was, when he was looking for it at the right time. Um, and so it is all around the, the, the insights and the visions of the people who put the solution together and presents it to the people in the right language and the right way. Great. So if I kind of expound on that, that's a little bit about what I was talking about with make sure you establish a good data strategy, right? Because at the end of the day, you don't want the overhead falling on the burden of your end users to do a lot of that heavy data lifting. But if DICT and the technology experts within the government can just pause, set a very foundational data strategy, then a lot of the data needs they have can be self-service at that level. Is that what you're essentially putting in? Absolutely. I'll just add that um, I'm sure most of you do this already, but it's certainly looking from the customer's or the end user's perspective backwards looking for what they need in and their data ergonomics in effect, what, what information is needed at that very point in time. I think one of the historical challenges we've all had, and I'm, I'm guilty of this working in the technology sector, is I look from the data upwards and I present what I think they need to see uh, and give them, let's say, hurdles that I think are easy to overcome, which can be totally bewildering to them uh, when you present it. So, of course, we have to start with the way that they look uh, and go backwards from that. Great, thank you, sir. Thank you. So, before we go to Grizel, um, we also want to make sure we open the floor up to questions. And the first 10 people that ask a question will actually get a prize. Yeah. So, um, do we have anyone out there who has either filled out a question before the event started, and host, if we do have questions, go ahead and read one off. Otherwise, we have two, we have one speaker here, or one microphone here, if anyone wants to ask a question. That is obviously your, your prize. Do we have any brave souls this morning? We have, okay, we've got a question, there we go. How is uh, SAS data analytics helping auditors? Auditors, anyone want to take that? Oh, well, have a go. Yep. So, um, you saw in the CJ Leeds case that we could demonstrate or clearly show who looked at what information, what records they checked out from the system, uh, what criminal records, for example, uh, what they did with that record, how they dispositioned the information to other people or disseminated the information to other people, uh, and where it went, what the results were at the end. So analytics helps at least understand what's going on with the information and present it to, people, uh, to the auditors in a way that makes sense. Uh, the other thing, of course, is uh, we, we have a solution that is specifically for auditors um, that helps identify things like financial movement through the government to make sure that the right financial procedures have been followed uh, and to identify any irregularities along the way uh, and actually present that information back to the auditors uh, so that they can see any time, at any point in time, what, what is going on with finance in the, in the government. So I, I think, Gerard, you hit a little bit on fraud. I want to hit a little bit on financial risk. So if there's one area of strength we have at SAS is with, within our, our financial services institution. In fact, we have very robust end-to-end -end solutions for banks and financial private sector companies. And one of the 
capabilities I'm most proud of in this particular space is the transparency factor. Because when you're doing analytics, you're experimenting. You're building many different scenarios. And as you build these scenarios, you're building a logic of why if I do X, then I need to do Z. You have to be able to document your logical thinking about why you're processing certain scenarios a certain way and ultimately be able to feed that to the auditor so that they can be able to trace back and unengineer the transparency of why you actually did what you needed to do. So this is our wheelhouse, best especially in the financial sector with transparent transparency and interpretability. Anyone else want to take that? Yeah, so just to add also with what they said, when we're talking about audit, there's a lot of use cases that we can also leverage on, right? So aside from looking at the business process that's happening within the within your organization, let's say for procurement, right? We look at each of the steps being done throughout the procurement process. And with, within the audit cycle, that's your responsibility to identify also if all of these procedures are actually being done. And normally when you do your auditing, let's say on a monthly basis or quarterly basis or even yearly, sometimes it's already, you know, whatever happened, any lapses or gaps that happened within the procurement process already happened in the past. So you're being um, not proactive in looking for what's actually happening within your organization because that's part of your responsibility as an audit, right? So if we try to be able to monitor continuously what is actually happening within the process of each of the organizational units, then you're gonna have a much better way of auditing each of the business units within our organization. Great, thank you. So did we have another question in the... Morning uh, from the Commission on Audit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, someone from Sales get with the audit team, please. <laughs> um, you've been, I heard in one video presentation earlier about the social media listening. Um, can you help us? How can we integrate? How can we integrate the social media listening with our function? Can I just check? Sorry, from a from an audit perspective, is that to check the integrity of your staff? No, actually, um, day in, day out, uh, some unsatisfied citizen might just ah, post, um, my congressman just, uh, congressman just financed this project which is not existing, and we want to take advantage. If we can listen in that sure. uh, social media, mm -hmm. it, it helps us uh, better perform our function. So do you mind if I take this one, George? Please, as early start. So what you're referring to is called sentiment analysis, and actually it's been around for quite some time. In fact, if you've ever done any uh, shopping on uh, any commerce site like um, Amazon, they have these recommendation engines to sell you chanelas or cookware or clothes or whatever because they know what your sentiment is going into their site. And so we have many different what we call customer intelligence tooling that measures sentiment analysis. So we take unstructured data coming from social media platforms and we ask you, what is it you want to tune into? Because there's a lot of noise, actually, in sentiment and social media data. Let me give you an example when I was at GM, because this is one of my projects. We had one of our premium cars, which was called a Cadillac, and we had released a picture of the concept car. And it was a very wide marketing event worldwide, and we wanted to see what, what fans of Cadillac were going to say about it. Did they like it? Did they not like it? Did they like the hood? Did they not? What were the sentiments? And as we started to analyze this data, what we found was it was very messy. So even though they had mentioned, yo, the Cadillac is really dope, yo, but 
I don't know about that front fender. What we came to find when we actually validated whether that opinion is good or not, we found that no, it's not. Why? Because that individual is 14 years old. <laughs> They're not part of our buying community. So if we had incorporated that into the overall statistical view, we would be missing the mark, would we not? And so in the same case that you are looking at you know, public decorum, there are many people who are just angry, who are just mad, and unconstructive and unproductive with what they put online. Do you really want to zero in on that? Is there value to that? Or more importantly, is there a score to rate that so that you can contextualize how important that actually is? We have those technologies and those systems that allow you to parse it down because it's not binary. When you think about sentiment analysis, it's not positive or negative. It's 51.111% positive because the policy for this senator met this criteria. That's the level of value you want to get to, not just, oh, looks like everyone from Bulacan likes us because we got a 70% positivity rating. If you're measuring at that level, you're not really doing analytics. You're doing what we call descriptive reporting, which is still important, but really not the real value that we can show you how to do. So anyone else on sentiment before we take another question? Uh, question here. Uh, what would you, sorry. Uh, Rather not disclose. Uh, uh, my, my question is, uh, how would you advise government agencies exploring analytics? Uh, how would you advise them to get ready uh, as far as organizational development and capacity building? Uh, because I've seen projects like this fail in government because the government agency is not ready. So what would you advise us? Should we uh, explore analytics to be adopted in an agency? I, sorry, let me just jump in because I think I have that slide, the Paragon slide. You were going to make sure you guys get the slides, but the answer is that Paragon slide. The first thing you have to do when you sit down with us, you can't find a problem to solve that's too big. No one ever succeeds trying to solve really big problems. What you want to do is you want to get these small incremental wins. So I'm not sure what agency you're on, so I'm going to pick on the auditors again, right? So let's say they have a, over a 10-year complex audit of documents, uh, filings of political activities and events. It's just highly complex, lots of dimensionality. The first thing I'd say with them is, we're not doing 10 years. No, what we need is a baseline of success that represents 10 years. So let's go do a month's worth with high dimensionality, with smaller data, smaller variables. Let's go prove that. And then when we prove that, let's go tell the public opinion that We've got a baseline for success. Now, we're only one-tenth of the way of the project, but we still knocked one down. Then you say scope for scope two is we go to six months or 12 months or whatever it is. So whatever your function is and whatever problems you have, we need to compartmentalize them into easily accessible success periods. That's how you get out of the pilot phase, where projects go to die these days is pilot phases, proof of concepts. And that's where they breed this foundation of success to build an incremental improvement and frankly, innovation. Innovation, I think in, in 2015 was the most overused word. I'd like it back again. Because as a government entity, you need to focus in on building incremental innovation, not mass innovation. It doesn't happen overnight. So hopefully that starts to address it. I'll see if anyone in the team wants to expand. 
May I just add quickly and then you so? I, I am curious, and I wouldn't mind catching up with you afterwards to find out what the reasons were for the project failure, because we all need to learn from that. Uh, but certainly in my experience with analytics particularly, that's more than other projects, uh, is that people, the, the end users fantasize about what the solution will bring, and it becomes the panacea of all of their problems because it, it, it will then understand everything and present everything in a meaningful way, which of course is the, is the ultimate goal. Uh, the, what the difference between success and failure is setting the customer and the end user's expectations as to about, about what it can realistically deliver in the early stages. And you just mentioned, Patrick, incremental stages there. So setting their expectations about what it will deliver in the early stages and then taking them along a roadmap towards development and setting those expectations in a rational, logical, realistic way going forward. So I guess just to summarize everything that was discussed today in this particular question, right? what is the main priority of your organization? We all have a vision. We all have a goal. But let's break it down and figure out what's the first step that we need to do and how can analytics play in that role. So let's have an example. I know the government has a big project that's coming up, uh, National ID, right? A lot of people are talking about it. All the different agencies are waiting for it to happen, right? So that's the main vision, to have a National ID for all Filipino citizens. We're all waiting for that. As a Filipino citizen, I'm waiting for that. But what's the first step? Bring it out, right? What's the next question that might come out? How are you going to protect my national ID? That's my question as a Filipino citizen, based on experience. So when you come up with a project, you have to think of what are the needs of your citizens? What are the needs of your client? Then slowly, on, you know, while you understand, as you understand it, slowly try to answer them and respond to it through analytics, right? You know there's a lot of duplication of IDs already happening with SSS, PIN. How can I prevent that from happening with national ID? Then we sit down, work on the steps on how we can protect that national ID. And then what's the next step after that? Until we finally complete that vision. But as mentioned, we have to take it step by step. And we will work with you step by step to identify how analytics can help you there. Thank you, Chris. I'm going to jump to Jason for a second here since we're not going to let him go free. <laughs> um, I've mentioned the word innovation, and Jason's background and experience uh, not only now is in analytics, but he comes from the infrastructure and the hardware space, which has really rapidly been innovating. And uh, I want Jason to talk a little bit about what some of the key things are that really strive to build innovation, especially that may be able to help the government sector. What are some things that you can maybe recommend? Yeah, I mean, just a bit of background, so that uh, at least to validate what Patrick's talked about. I was in the uh, innovation center for over 10 years in a previous organization across Asia Pacific. So if you look at innovation perspective, when we look at innovation, there are two dimensions we get. One dimension is that when we look at innovation is these are things that are not able to fulfill by the current technology. There are some challenges you're facing that require certain development, that require certain incremental effort inside here. So that's one dimension. So for, for SAS perspective, I think Ryan talked about the fact that analytics is in the DNA for SAS. 
The other thing that is DNA for SaaS really is innovation. And you can see that over the past years, SaaS invested a lot of money into innovation in R&D perspective. So one of the innovation we put a lot of focus really is custom innovation. Where we actually innovate a lot with customers. So the framework we have actually developed in SaaS is called co-innovation. The strategy where we actually work with customers, where we provide our technology, we prepare our people, working with the customer, identify your business challenges, and then look at how do we actually drive the innovation together with you. And this is the framework that we established in the region. Indeed, we're in the process of having that set up exist in uh, ASEAN itself. And one of the things we want to do is really to, well, the reason I'm coming here is really to see whether there's any opportunity that you can work with government here to identify areas that you think that you want to innovate with SAS. I think Patrick bring up one point here is that for a lot of analytic work to be done successful in the government, the private sector play a role here. I think where we actually look at it is looking at all the practices we've done in the commercial side. Hopefully you can actually co-innovate with you because you understand government better. We put on the table here the technology, we put on the table here is our people who are actually the data scientists can co-innovate with you. So I'm here hopefully that we can find an engine that we can actually collaborate quite closely here. Thanks Jason, that's really good. You heard me talk about computer vision. But there are other analytic problems across many different departments that you have that are similar. This is where you come to Jason and you say, hey, tell me more about SAS's innovation lab and how we can bring you a problem and we can bring our development resources and your development resources and really accelerate solving that problem so it can be reused and repurposed across many departments. It's not just for law enforcement. It's not just for the auditors. It's also for agriculture. It's for records keeping. It's for BIR. Those are the things we need to have conversations for you. As much as I want to help an individual department, actually I want to get more reusable value to say if I'm solving this for you, how can I help use this across many spectrums so that the government has, doesn't have to triple pay, triple work, triple develop simple solutions that have a commonality to them. Okay, Let's take another question from the floor. Uh, good morning. I'm Cesar Quintos from uh, Laguna Lake Development Authority. Uh, our uh, agency issues uh, uh, LLD clearance and uh, discharge permit to uh, different business establishments within our region. So uh, what we notice, uh, several uh, government agency also issues uh, business permit business permits, uh, SSA or uh, business permits and uh, SEC registration. Uh, my question is uh, similar to what has been discussed uh, on the national uh, ID system. Uh, why not uh, develop a uniform uh, business establishment ID for the mm. uh, business sector? How does uh, SAS help the government on this aspect? So can Thank I start? You. And then please, you can, please. So the first thing that you mentioned there that I tuned into immediately was Gerard's slide about silos. Yes. You have permits here, you have other agencies, those are what we call silos, right? They all have a dimension of how that permit was issued, the dates of standardization of beginning to end, the names of the individuals, the names of the, the, the entities. When we look at that data strategy for this particular project that you would have us join, the first thing we're gonna solve is how do we move the silos, okay? That's the critical part. That's everything that Gerard really talked about because that can be very heavy and very messy. 
Once we do that, then we can talk about the analytic insights really accelerating from there. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, Gerard and Christophe, why don't you guys talk a little bit about National ID and how exactly we're doing that and well, what we intend to, to go more. So I, I, I was hearing you there. Could, could you just give the microphone back? Could you tell me in, in your words why? What, what's in it for you to bring all of that, those records together? How do, what value do you see? Uh, yeah, uh, because uh, we noticed that, uh, that some uh, local government units are issuing business permits without uh, uh, our uh, LLD clearance or discharge permit. So maybe if there is uniformity, uh, government will see which one, which uh, business establishment that uh, doesn't have uh, LLD clearance or vis-a-vis the mm. local government unit uh, maybe that does have clearance yeah, is not involved yeah, in the clearance yeah. so, so it breaks down the whole credibility of the permit issuing process you, you've either, as exactly as you've said if you don't bring it all together then either the wrong people are giving the clearance or the re right people weren't involved in giving the clearance either way that clearance becomes suspect at the end of the day and it, the whole value of it is debatable so it's essential, actually, to the integrity of the whole clearance process or to the whole permit issuing process. Uh, and the value is that at the end of it all, it will then become trusted, supported, and verified by the right people, and the wrong people can't corrupt it in some way or another. So with that, with that said, that's exactly what was happening with the CJ Leeds. It's exactly what you were talking about, Chriselle, with the National ID program, um, in that it's... It, it checks and makes sure the credentials are right and that makes sure that the, the right people support it and respect it at the end of it all. And that's the foundation. I mean, if you, if you don't issue the right permit, then the whole buying process, the development process, the trust that people will have in the developments that you're working with will become flawed. And that could actually break down the entire success of the project. I mean, if I'm a buyer in a development, one of my first concerns is if I buy it, how... How do I really own it? Or will somebody come by in 10 years' time and say, actually, we didn't approve you getting that, so we're going to take it back? Yeah. Uh, and that, that could actually be a fundamental impact in the development of the Philippines. Yeah. There's the value. Yeah. Uh, so where I'm getting to in all of this is if you grasp that value and you emphasize that importance to all the stakeholders then they'll get, if they get it and they're bought into it, then you overcome the problems, the political problems of the silos. Right. That would, and as I mentioned in my presentation, yes, there's technical problems, but I think you all agreed, actually a lot of them are political problems with the silos. And so get the value to them, get them to understand what this really means, and finally they'll buy in and overcome those hurdles. Right. Yeah. Great. So I want to have a little bit, before we take another question, we will take another question here from the floor. I want to have a little fun with Chriselle here because I like to pick on her. Now, Chriselle's our local resident expert on fraud analytics. Um, she actually is working with some of our tier one customers. She is boots on the ground, hands getting dirty, solving problems with our tier one customers on fraud. So it being election season here, Chriselle, I'm going to pick on you. I'm going to ask you the Miss Universe question. If you were dutily elected... <laughs> Which position would you want? Why? But more importantly, what analytic problem do you think you would try and solve, and why? Wow, the title is on the line. Thank you for that question. <laughs> oh, that was a loaded thank you. Okay. <laughs> I have a world peace. 
Okay, so what's the, let's break it down. So your break first question was, if I get elected, what position? What position? For this coming election. Well, election, 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 right? What so position? definitely it's to become a senator, right? That's the highest position right wow. now. So let's go for the highest wow. one. Wow. <laughs> right? So let's go for senator. Why? It's to be able to come up with new laws and new policies, and that's the best way how we can deliver analytics. I think if you look at all the policies that we have right now, and we're talking about analytics, trying to see the value of all the data, there's really not much policies that can strengthen the use of analytics throughout each of the government agencies, and not just local, but even the private companies, right? So that is what something, that is what I wanna bring into the table. If I become a senator, yes. <laughs> Go for me here, please. <laughs> Should be taking donations after you. Then <laughs> yeah. have my um, what do you call that? That show later on. Yeah, we're do super also later on. <laughs> Campaign tool. Campaign tool. It's an interesting so, answer actually that you bring it up, Chrisal, because when we think about policy and legislation, we tend to think of it as very long-running policy and legislation. But the reality is, is is that any different than what we're talking about with analytic projects? When you develop a model. The model doesn't stay active and stay accurate all the time. It eventually dilutes. Why? Because the human experience changes, right? And so does the legislation effectiveness and the policy effectiveness. Remember my, my quote on idealism is great until the falsehood of necessity changes it. In the same case that we create legislation and policy today, next year, next five years, 10 years, we have to have an analytic system that tells us whether that policy is still effective, whether or not it's still improving the experience rather than just baseline experience or worse, making the citizen experience worse, right? So I think that's the heart of what you're talking about, right? Yes, correct. So I think another thing just to add there, right? Behaviors change, right? People change, how we do things change, right? So even the policies have to change from time to time. How we deal with different opportunities, different threats, it changes over time. But what's important is that you need to have a platform that can support all these changes. It cannot be you have a problem now, I will have this platform specifically for this problem. And then one year, two years down the line, there's a different problem. So what are you gonna do with this platform, right? There's a lot of expenses, infrastructure-wise, everything. You've spent so much just for one project and then it's done after a year. So think about long-term also. You need to have a platform in place that can allow you to adapt to these changes, help you monitor all of the data coming in, ingesting it across different data sources, and leverage on those data per use case, per type of problems or opportunities that you would want to deal with. Right? And I think with that, there's gonna be more progress in terms of the project that you're going to do moving forward. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, come so I see two, you mentioned elections, so, and we know that's on your minds right now. Um, I see two fundamental roles for, election, uh, for analytics in elections. Yeah. The first one is, as we've all talked about here, is understanding the sentiment of the constituents and, and checking that the policies are matching the sentiment and stuff. And, and the ones that get elected are the ones that demonstrate an awareness and understanding of the pains you're going through and what you want out of it. So it's, it's, it could be instrumental to actually succeeding in an election. And that's the carrot. 
okay? But there's the stick as well, I'm afraid, and that is the integrity of the elections. Uh, who trusts the elections? If, the, if people are elected who you are suspicious about or you're suspicious about the process of elections, then when they are elected, it actually could be a disaster rather than a success. Uh, and analytics can play a role in checking the integrity of the election process and making sure that the right routines have been followed, that there's been no attempt at abusing the election process you know, from beginning to end. Much the same as identities, actually. Exactly. So deep fakes, what we're talking about is getting to the real truth of where the real truth is similar to what Gerard was just talking about is maintaining the rightful accuracy of the election. Same set of concept. So I think we have time for maybe one or two more questions why don't we, whomever gets the mic first, go up and stand up, sir? Hi, good morning. I am from the ICT. Stay, stay standing, because we will yes. do you too. Uh, <laughs> we have been saying that the data is the new currency, and I'd like to translate it into improving the government's bottom line. Can you, could you show us any model or examples on how, how the public sector could uh, monetize data or sell it to the, pri to the private mm -hmm. sector? Absolutely. So I, I covered this a little bit at the beginning of the hour. And by the way, this afternoon we have a wonderful expert, uh, uh, Asif, who's going to talk about smart cities where he'll expound on this. But I'll, I'll hint a little bit about what uh, Asif will talk about. As I mentioned with my General Motors analogy of car companies now feeling like they are data companies and using all the sensory data to enhance their customer experience in the car, right? When cars are driving themselves, you're going to be bored. So they want to send them advertisements. They want to ask them if they want to go to Starbucks. They want to you know, measure the health of the car. They're going to do a lot of different things. The government actually has more wealthy data than automotive companies. The government has a tremendous amount of breadth, meaning wide data. Again, look at the representation just in this room and all the departments that you're covering with your data. Velocity, veracity, tremendous amounts of data. The question is, who needs that data? Right? So when you look at your private sector partners, and I know there's many partnerships that exist today within the government. Let's take the real estate developers. Let's take the conglomerates. How much data do they need to run their business? Right? You can very quickly go. Let me talk about agriculture. We know our farmers in the Philippines are not extremely wealthy. They don't have money to be sitting here talking to me and Gerard about analytics. Right? But in my computer vision use case, I talked about maximizing yield, either helping to prevent soil erosion, helping to prevent um, malnutrition, yield crop uh, infections. Right? From my perspective, that's not a farmer's role to create those capabilities. From my perspective, that's yours. And it's your role because we care about our GDP in the country. Because exports and agriculture is a tremendous part about us getting, guess what, more, more external foreign financial investments. If our GDP goes down in the country, do you think foreign investors are gonna to wanna to give us more money to build, build, build? No, so we've gotta keep agriculture up, right? And by doing that, we can enable our citizen experiences, our farmers, to say, let us help you become more active at building better crop yields. And by the way, by doing that, I'm going to sell this data, not to you, the farmers, but we're gonna sell this ultimately to the consumers who are gonna benefit from more organic produce. We're gonna benefit from better 
partnerships with the pesticide companies and the other individuals that are involved in the uh, agriculture ecosystem. So that's how you monetize your data, right? It's not for a lack of what do you sell, it's, it's a lack of what do you want to sell to who and under what business model and practice. That's the conversation we need to have. And as different representatives from every entity within different departments, you need to start to be processing and thinking about that and talking to your undersecretaries about what the infinite possibilities are so that we can get with DICT and make sure that the piping exists for you to be actually to do that. Yeah. Jason? Yeah, just some experience I've done in my previous job. I think some of the low-hanging fruit for government, there are two dimensions to get. One is really in terms of how do I reduce my operating costs? So I think you talk about smart city is an interesting area because you look around in most countries across ASEAN, the first project they typically under, undertaking is a smart lighting project. And typically if you don't use the data into the smart lighting project itself, typically a cost of saving can be as high as 50-60% of the cost. So that translates immediately the cost saving for the government. And coming from Singapore, one of the things that uh, Singapore is trying to drive from the, from the data side is really to look at how do I use data to actually increase my productivity. So it's indirect revenue generation because if I can increase the productivity by reducing a lot of my uh, wastage in the resources here, it can help a lot. Things like what Ryan talked about, the on-demand bus, is actually one of the concepts. If I can actually look at how do I reduce the traffic hour needed for a person to move from point A to point B, I can actually increase the productivity. So that's what the on-demand bus that Ryan talked about actually came from that dimension. And the other thing that government, a lot of government doing today now is actually the open data platform, where basically you have agency putting the data on the table. And the intention around it is really to say that can I get an ecosystem that people use the data to create innovation? And one of the reasons why people put the open data on the platform is to create the startup ecosystem. People looking at data here, build their startup services to serve the citizen. Indirectly, you're generating a new revenue for yourself by get, getting more GDP generated from there. So these are two or three different practices that country have been doing today now. Great, thanks, Jason. Actually, yeah, this gentleman with yeah, the blue shirt let's, let's is very keen to ask a question. I think this is our last question yeah, uh, for sure. this session. Very we fun. will have... Oh, so we two last questions. This gentleman first, and then we'll go to this gentleman next. Hello. Uh, go ahead. Uh, oh, over here, please. Go ahead, sir. Uh, good morning. I'm Larry Abo from the Department of Agriculture. So part of my work is uh, forecasting supply and demand for pork and chicken. So my question is, you see, I'm using another software. So what? So how do you think will SAS capability compare to? The forecasting capability of your competitors, like EVs or status. Well, let me take it a little bit less adversarially. <laughs> Here's the key to forecasting. Okay, it's it's one thing to forecast and get numbers and analysis back. It's another thing to embed your forecasts into your actual process. Um, my experience at General Motors again, uh, we were working on what we call the 10-year long-term forecasting method, and that was looking at everything from how much does sugar in our coffee rooms cost to how much we're going to make on our most premium cars to how much cardboard we sell. So we're looking at an element level, everything the company spends on, and we're assessing our forecast of new revenue versus our forecast of spend across 10 years. That is high dimensionality of data. Now, the reason why I bring up that level of complexity because is just getting the data back wasn't enough to say we need to spend less on sugar, soda, and we need to make more margin on cars. 
But what the key success factor was is we built in what we call alerts, intelligent decision managing systems into that process. So let me give you an example. So in government, government's running 24-7, 365 days a week. You're constantly and should be running a forecast. Your budget for your department is constantly spending, whether you realize it or not, whether it be labor cost, whether it be CapEx, whether it be OpEx. If all this data is in a forecast, you can start to establish some basic business rules. How do we drive 10% efficiency as a forecast in our operating spend as a company or as a department? You set up a business rules that says if A plus B equals C, we will be on target or not on target with 10%, just as an example, right? That business rule, we can automate into the forecasting systems. And then we can take the data. You don't even have to hit a button. You're not printing a report. You're not printing a dashboard. This is automatically being fed into your business process that says, Mr. Undersecretary, it looks like the Agriculture Board is currently tracking at 47% under budget. We should go ahead and give them a nice clap and round of applause, or worse, on the converse side, set up an alert, undersecretary, looks like your budget will exceed over 25%, you need to go fire this gentleman over here in the blue shirt. <laughs> Whatever it might be, joking aside, of course, but that is the actual key. So it's not so much look at our competitors and look at generic forecasting. We've been doing forecasting for FSI customers for 30 plus years, frankly, and I'd be happy to show you and document who we've been doing with billion dollar companies on forecasting. The key is, how do we make that insight actionable in an automated way so that you don't have to wake up at 8 a.m. and go, where am I at on my forecast? It was actually done for you when you woke up and now you know if you're about to get fired. So, <laughs> I'll, I'll, just, I'll just throw in that the, uh, there's a big difference between business intelligence and forecasting. You know, business intelligence is really giving you a, a dashboard on where you are, which is valuable. Uh, and a lot of people base their forecasts on the business intelligence reports. The forecasting part is the genius part. That that's the toughest part, and it's actually the highest risk part. Advanced analytics plays a vital role in that. Predictive analytics plays a vital role. Uh, and that's where I would say we would differentiate ourselves from other organizations. It's the strength of our ability to do that predictive analytics. And, and now, influencing machine learning into the predictive analytics side of it. Yeah, and prescriptive, that's a good point. So outside of predictive, predictive being, it looks like you're gonna go over budget. Prescriptive being, since you're gonna go over budget, these are the five things you should go do before you get that call from the undersecretary. And again, automated alert systems. And this is what Priscel was talking about with course correction earlier. If you have a foundational enterprise of analytics strength, you can make descriptive, predictive, and prescriptive changes with a hit of a button. So that new, new changes happen in the new experience in your new department, you're no longer in a reactionary state, you're in a proactive state to say, I see it coming, the system's telling me what I need to do, I'm gonna go put the people place and technology in place to, to go do that. So one last question and then we are for lunch and a break, I think, yeah. Good morning. I am Police Colonel Soriano from the Philippine National Police. The peculiarity and the unique nature of the data that we collect and store and the emergence of the data privacy law make us very much concerned with data protection. So what, my question is what degree of assurance or level of security can your present system provide to meet this uh, or to address this concern? Yep. So let me start. Okay. Yep. Data privacy 
Data security is extremely important. In fact, um, I will say at a metric level, we're spending billions of R&D dollars every year specifically on this one area. Now, you asked a bit of a subjective question in the sense of what are we doing to prevent it? The first question to actually answer or ask is not what we are doing. The first question is what data and to whom and for what purpose? Those are the three elements and categories. And the reason why I articulate this way is not because I'm trying to punt from accountability, not at all. I'm trying to make sure that we're all operating at a level of understanding and transparency to say, this data belongs to this person and be used for this purpose. Let me give you a really simple to understand example. I usually wear one of those fitness watches because I'm chubby and I'm getting old and I need to do better with my health. I don't want you to have that data, but I certainly want my doctor to have it. I certainly want my nutritionist to have it. I certainly want my relatives to have it so they know that what's going on with me health-wise halfway around the world. So it's not about not making data available, it's making sure what data, to whom, and for how are they going to use it for good and right purpose. Once we fundamentally establish that as a strength and can answer those questions of agriculture data, public health data, audit data, we can then design the technology behind to say, how do I disperse this across what will eventually be a highly matrixed organization across government? I won't steal Gerard Stunler because I know he's going to bring it up, but the whole fusion project in the United States, many different government law enforcement ent entities are creating their own data. And we've talked about moving the silos away, but guess what? Not all data, because of their level of security, sensitivity should go in that main silo. And not everyone has access to that main silo. So then you start to see these branches. And if we master those three elements, who, where, what, for what purpose, then the mapping of that intelligence at a technology level becomes a lot easier. So Gerard, mm -hmm. I know you're chopping at a bit. You, uh, thank you, actually. Uh, you're right. Um, from the, certainly the demonstrating the right integrity around the data, transparency and governance, uh, showing audit trails on what data has been moved to where, who has seen it and what they've used it for is all vital to at least establishing that, ticking that box for data governance. Okay? I'm going to take it a bit further, if you don't mind. The reason people are demanding this data governance is because of one very precious word, and that's trust. And you, actually the real skill, the real difference that you'll make is if you use that data for the right reasons and deliver the results that they need, if you assure your citizens that you as a police force are using that data to make them safer, actually the trust factor is established and what, how you're using the data becomes less relevant. That's, I know it sounds crazy, but they, if they trust you and they believe in what you're trying to achieve from the data, Governance becomes less of an issue. So let's, I would say, yes, we'll help you tick that box, but I would want to take it further and help you deliver the results from that data that establishes the trust with your citizens. Right. What's does, that, does that answer the question, by the way? Not quite. Not quite. Help us more. So, so let, me, let me take a shot. Go ahead. Please because we have external data, yes. right. data for the consumption of the public, and we have internal data also. Yes. For example, our payroll system. Mm -hmm. That system 
is uh, we use that system to 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 you know for the salaries benefits of the 200,000 plus personnel that involves billions of pesos every month so security for that or safety or protection for that and uh, law enforcement does not only protect liberty and property more more importantly life so when there are data that when revealed might compromise people's lives yes that's right yeah. absolutely and, and again i think so let me expound and, and see if you can hit on some of this Gerard. so let's take the payroll data as a really good example of this so there are people internally that need access to that payroll system so in the three components that i mentioned what we would do to establish what technology to apply to this problem is okay first wherever this payroll data lives and breathes internally Let's secure it through encryption methods and many tactical, very technical things that I don't want to bore this team about. But the more complex aspect of this is not about encryption. It's not about um, you know putting it under and behind many IT firewalls. That's actually not the hard part. The hard part, believe it or not, is me asking you which individuals, roles, and groups within the entire government entity, whomever it is, that needs to use this information to do their job should have access to it. And when I say should, I mean when, how often, what they should be doing. That was the two and the three that I was talking about. Once we understand that, then I can, I can open the door to the person. It's kind of like a door, right? I know when that door opens, I'm opening the door to that database to the right person. So while it's easy for me, technology, to just bedazzle you and go, soup 256 bit encryption, quantum computing encryption, many different firewalls, that's not the answer you want to hear or need. What you need to hear and need and what we need to work on with you is who needs the data, for what purpose, when do they need the data, for what intent. Once we have that map, once we have that requirement, applying the technology, because it's gonna be multiply varied, right? Maybe the undersecretary who's the head of your organization doesn't even have access to data. Wait, he's the head, but maybe the person below that does. Maybe three people removed do and don't. So you're gonna find there are no binary rules, right? How your operations run are gonna be very different. Once we understand that map, then we can apply the best technologies around that. But if you don't have a good map, that's when vulnerabilities happen. And that's what you're kind of zeroing in on is, hey look, I've got an internal system and I know who should use it, but you're not telling me how I have vulnerabilities because I think it's a technology problem. Now I'm telling you it's part technology problem, but it's also part transparency of who, what, where, and when, and making sure the technology aligns with the rules of access controls that you should have. So data privacy is very important. Again, we're spending billions of dollars to establish these very complex rules and highly matrixed access control systems we're investing in something called data fabrics. You might want to Google that. That's actually an interesting read that says, how do we create data in fabrics of consumption to the people that need to use it when they need to use it and pull back the fabric when they don't, right? So that's an area that we can expound on. Was, was cybersecurity part of your question? Yes. yes. Ah, okay. Do you, do you want to talk about that? Or? Okay, I mean, so, Cybersecurity, we have our walls. So you mentioned the firewalls, the encryption, and all the ways to stop intrusion. But the one extra role that's, that analytics can play is, is monitoring the behavior of both the people who are using the data to, demo, to check their intent, 
That's insider threat, insider fraud. There could be an intention of malice behind the, how they're using the data, or even outside using the data. We talked about sentiment, we talked about emotions. Analytics can actually establish the sentiment and emotion of your, of your staff who are working in the finance department. Have they got a, are they standing a risk of leaking that data for some political or emotional reason that they have? That's the first thing. The second part of it is how the data is being used. Is there a breach of any type, whether it's human or technological? If the data is being breached in some way and being abused, we can use analytics to catch that very quickly and actually shut down sessions. So that's going beyond your normal cybersecurity uh, routines right down to looking at how data is being used and establishing the intention behind the data, the use. And if it's, if it's a breach, shut it down. Did, did that answer more of your question? Thank you. We'd, we'd be happy to continue the conversation because yeah. it's so vast, yeah. frankly. It's so complex, but it's a really fun one to have and a good one to have. We do have examples of both those, of both the cybersecurity of the data and insider threat for governments that we could talk about offline. Okay, I was passed one last note. Apologies, I said that was going to be the last question. This will be the last question, because apparently it's a hot burning one. Information or data, it's similar to the conversation we just had, is power. Information and data is power. Does data analytics need to be regulated, Griselle? Let's start with you on that. Do we need to start regulating analytics? Things like how people are using artificial intelligence, maybe? Maybe machine learning? Are they, could they be using these things for bad? What are your thoughts on regulation? Give yeah, her the tough questions. Chriselle's going to say thank you again in that loaded way. Okay. Um, does it have to be regulated? I think at this point in time, this is just my opinion. Yes. Right? Within the government space, um, we're still in the early risers when you're dealing with analytics. So I think exploring the capabilities and the information, the insights that your data can, can provide, I think you need to be able to grasp that first. So understanding that information, right, the data that you have, trying to figure out what should be the priorities that you should be dealing with based on the information that you're getting within your organization or even across different organizations, I don't think that has to be regulated. Because those are information that you own, right? I think the more important question is who can do the analysis? Not everybody can or should analyze all of, all of the information that you have. So when you're gonna do the regulation, regulate the right people who should have access to the right data and provide that insights. Once I have access, because you trust me, I have the expertise to analyze all of these information, then let me explore those data and provide you the right information so that you can do your jobs better. So in terms of the regulation, how to do analysis, machine learning, all the different types of methodologies, you shouldn't regulate it. Regulate the person who will be doing that. The one key thing I'll add to, because I think Chriselle brings up a wonderful point in that, is while you're growing your analytical capabilities and maturation, make sure you emphasize transparency, right? So when Chriselle is building her reports, getting her access, doing her job with the best intentions, transparently her managers, her stakeholders, her bosses, the people that are using this information can transparently see how she created it. That's where we get into trouble with analytics, when there's the lack of transparency. 
right? Again, GM, autonomous driving vehicles, my team, project, working on it. Our problem was not, uh, you know, did we identify the cat, the dog, the child, the street lamps? That was easy. Our hardest job was identifying, well, if one of our cars accidentally runs over a child, how do we explain why it did it and how we failed and how we will prevent it? That's the transparency part. And I think this is probably where a lot of that question came in is we're starting to see things like autonomous vehicles out there where, uh, you know, and they will come to the Philippines very soon. And what is the Philippines government of either regulating or unregulating those kinds of things if the automotive companies can't provide you transparency to say this is how we will handle this situation when it comes across, when a child darts across with a soccer ball. What is the car's liability and ability to react in a way to dodge that child? Was it transparently documented and identified? Tough question on regulation in that sense. Uh, may I, Jason, and then you? Is that right? Sorry. It's already happening. Um, I, we, we've all grown up in the age when uh, social media was open and everyone didn't care. You know? uh, and we've seen over the last decade particularly how people are allowed to get to certain insights using social media is becoming more and more controlled. There are government organizations regulating it, uh, and there's also de facto regulations. There's a, a moral code to how you use data. The whole Cambridge Analytica scandal with the influence on the elections, the US elections and Brexit, has brought more regulation, more tighter scrutiny to the people who have the data and checking what intent they have with that data. That intent is brought to fruit using analytics. So there is, uh, analytics is already being regulated in effect by governing what people do with data and then data is being withdrawn from people who are abusing it in some way or another. Jason. Yeah, I come from a different angle here, slightly from, from your, because I think if you start looking at a lot of companies who are still, a lot of countries who are in the advanced stage of the analytics side, like in the case of Singapore, one of the things that they start looking at is actually talk about regulation. The regulation they're talking about is actually AI ethic. As founding on what uh, Patrick talked about car. The incident that we talked about, really, even a car is trying to drive towards a, a scenario here. You got a choice between hitting a old lady and a young child in order to do something happen. Now you go with the ethic now. What would be the right approach? Is it hitting an old lady or hitting a child? Just because you have no choice. Now you go with the ethic now. What would be the guideline around it? Because there'll be certain biasness in your data, in your model itself. But are we ready for regulation? I don't think we are ready. There's a lot of discussion about that at this juncture. But I think it's a matter of time we'll come back to, to look into that space of regulation. Great, fantastic. Well, with that, I think we are gonna conclude the morning panel session. Thank you all for asking questions. We will have another one of these in the afternoon and giving away more books. So I think we're breaking for lunch, yeah? Great, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you, very. We know that when you think about the segments of government, you think about citizen services, it's in the multitudes of thousands. So how do you, as the Philippine government representatives here, how do you think they should think about it? Where do they get started? What is the call to action today in terms of really actually mobilizing their smart city initiatives and starting to make real progress under smart city? So, um you made a mention of uh, learning from your mistakes. So it depends now clearly on what you are starting. Are you starting a greenfield project or starting a brownfield project? Now, if you're looking at a brownfield project in, in Manila itself, Metro Manila, then you need to look at 
where are the areas which you could really improve and where traffic congestion is one uh, and go by maybe energy management go by projects based on those needs one or two departments at best first and then go gradually build onto that those platforms but it's important to have an analytical platform first like you had mentioned earlier in your uh, presentation the platform needs to be set and platform by platform i mean in terms of how is the data going to come in who's going to analyze it how are you going to analyze it where are you going to deploy it and then that same cycle needs to be repeated for each and every use case if you go to greenfield city it's obviously very different then you have a lot of digitization of processes uh, automation of processes building uh, large scale ai and machine learning implementation coming in you could probably go and club three or four use cases together use cross vertical uh, use cases across energy management transport management etc so it's it's a little different there but uh, brownfield basis yes it's a use case based outcome based approach is what you need to follow i think one of the things that's a really great response here is one of the things i would recommend to every branch of government here today as a new smart city starts to break ground you know that largely it's about urban planning it's about building the big infrastructure components whether it be utility roads um all sorts of things that sort of lay the groundwork for what a smart city is and i think the best thing that you can do is you can talk to your partners in that urban planning stage the early stage and say hey as you're building out things like computer networks as you're building out computer data centers as you're building out all these things that eventually me and my team will be using and my applications will be using as part of your smart city initiative i'd like for you to hear about what we think smart city is to us what kinds of problems we would like to solve with a smarter city that way you're doing a couple things right one you're putting real design and thought into it but two you're getting ahead of the, the curve because if you're behind the curve and they've built out all this basic infrastructure and they didn't consider what your department needed law enforcement audit agriculture uh BIR all these things then they've got to kind of reengineer in a lot of ways don't they they need to reconsider they got to address you in a later phase as opposed to saying we're going to account and plan for how PNC wants to do law enforcement in the smart city even though right now all we're doing is building utilities what things in utilities might law enforcement need in surveillance cameras in network uh wifi traffic so are there are these interdependencies that you guys have with each other that if you start these discussions early and often more likely you're going to uh, ha not have to rework and have a higher chance of success would you agree as yeah and also uh, uh, earlier on the day someone mentioned that they've seen a lot of projects fail right i mean i've seen also many big data projects fail the problem with those is that you tackle it from the uh, perspective of collecting all the possible data sets that you have and storing all of them uh, again in smart cities governments need to know you are not in the business of uh, gathering data that's not your business your business is specialized services right and data is a means to achieve those specialized services as long as you realize that then your focus is going to be on optimizing the service that you provide rather than setting up the infrastructure alone for gathering all this data and managing all of that data that is part and parcel of the program you don't need to set up the whole thing in the first place even if you are in the first phase even if you are going for a greenfield project start by implementing outcomes get the funds monetize your data as long as you monetize your data you are going to keep getting the funds to you know start getting more and more data in place i mean it's it's a, it's a it's a cycle that keeps on going
Absolutely, very iterative. Okay, so let's open up the first question to the floor. Good afternoon. I'm Barry Fernandez from the Central Bank of the Philippines. Um, this is a question particularly for relating to this um, presentation of smart cities. Uh, which is a caveat, I'm not really sure if my question is relevant or correct, or I may, may, I may have taken it out of context. But um, we've been discussing about um, social and humans, uh, human capital being required for smart cities, right? And then earlier this morning, we had a very extensive discussion on human people and culture and organizations. And yeah, just um, in your presentation earlier, we went on audacious um, steps in automating decision making. But I'm not sure if everyone remembers or noticed, there was a slide in your presentation where you presented the focus on digitization and you only mentioned services, processes, decisions, and data sharing. There weren't anything about people. And if here we also talk about, again, um, people problems or problems coming from political, uh, political problems, and still it relates to people. Why is it not, um, why is it that people or culture is not the main focus on digitization. Thank wow. you. Profound question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it, it is not that people, people are central. I mean, even if you look at some of the slides after that that I mentioned about AI, it's about human and machines. So it's not machines. Uh, the people element does come into the process because who's the person who's going to handle it? these uh, documents, right? I mean, the digital interface is only going to provide a means for the citizen to start the process. But taking that process forward internally inside the organization, of course the process is automated in terms of the physical movement of the documentation. But the decision maker eventually is a human being. The person who's going to sign it is a human being. The person's role gets changed. He is not going to be browsing documents for days on and trying to understand it. The understanding is already done by the machine. He's going to take the intelligent decision. He's going to deploy it. So he's going to decide this form electronically is sent to X department or Y department. Whether he agrees with it or doesn't agree with it. That is the intellectual level rise that he's going to get. So rather than being a means to just you know, uh, get a, a document move from one department to the other, he's going to put a lot of thought into it, a lot of thinking into it. Processes without human beings, it's just not possible. It's, I mean, it's part of my irrational uh, uh, risk threats that I was mentioning. There's going to be loss of jobs. No, there's going to be a change in the way the role, change in the role, change in the divisions that you're going to operate, change in the way that you're going to implement your daily work style. But people element, you're spot on. It's part of the processes, and AI, human plus machines, is a must. There is nothing to do without human beings and Yeah, let me let me expound on that because I think there's this misconception about artificial intelligence in a lot of ways. That um, artificial intelligence is at a point where it can replace a human being or replace jobs. The truth of the matter is, is that's outright false. Right now, the focus from every technology company, whether you're SaaS, whether you're Microsoft, Oracle, whether you're just some hotshot kid coding today, some new AI thing, what you're actually focused in is automation and increasing human productivity. And as Asif articulated extremely well, he said it very nicely, he says, look, your job before can now, components of that can now be automated so that a human being can now focus on, on more 
other innovative steps, more value-added steps, frankly. So it is very much about the human experience, and, but it's not about replacing humans out of the equation, because that doesn't happen. It's about saying, look, I can now no longer have to be a mailman that has to drive from mailbox to mailbox because we can now handle more things digitally, but now I can think about being a program manager for logistics. And now I can think about innovating myself in a different way. And that is the actual labor shift. And there are studies by McKinsey, by the United Nations, and many other uh, very intellectual bodies about how do we avoid human displacement in this increased productivity world, but more importantly, how do we shift people's knowledge and, and abilities and their current roles and functions into new innovative spaces. And I'm, I'm happy to say as a technologist, that's well on its way to, to head in the right direction. Thank you. Before you go, just one more. So just look at this very simple example which I'll give you. Banks back home in Dubai, at the back end, earlier there used to be a security guard outside the office. You cannot access the back end unless you pass through. You, he's questioned you three or four things, and if he's not convinced, you're not allowed to go in. So now there's a fingerprint access, right? So only employees can go in. The security guard is no longer required, but the security guard actually goes inside, right? And he sits at a counter, which is a customer service counter. So he's, his job is upgraded. He's no longer a security guard. He's actually directing a lot of people to the right counters where they should go. The job is not gone. The job is there, his role has changed. And what you have managed to achieve is, that his mundane job of eight hours continuously standing there as a security guard is no longer there. It's just fingerprint identification. That's AI for can, can I just ask, were you referring to people in culture in the government, like the government staff, or were you talking about citizens? They're both. Yeah. Or both. I was particularly asking people in organizations. In the organization. Yes. Okay. May I just explain the context why I'm Please. asking the question? So I'm coming from the IT of the Central Bank and we've been, well, I think the IT department of the Central Bank has been there for since the beginning of IT. But it seems like the digital transformation of the Central Bank cannot really fly because of the acceptance, probably the technology readiness of the people to accept technology. And here we talk about analytics, we talk about AI. And I'm not sure if I mean, even if the Philippines is already implementing electronic elections, national ID system, I'm not really sure if Filipinos really do understand what technology is, more so the people in organizations implementing technology. That's why I'm asking, so, why is it not important to talk about people in digitization? Right, so then two things, or three things actually. One, I want to answer the question you didn't ask, okay, <laughs> which was, Really, what about the, the culture of people? We've talked about the machine, but what about the people in government and citizens? Now, the one key thing, do you remember my slide, 80%, 20%, all of these things? Our whole objective is really to take the drudgery and the frustration and the pain out of using technology and present actionable intelligence that helps them make decisions and actually increase the satisfaction of their work. And you saw the, the quick video of the, the trooper. You saw the emotion, you saw the relief and the ease that he expressed through using CJ Leeds. You know, so to the, certainly the objective of the system is to improve the quality of the lives of the people who are using the system. But if you were asking about citizens, the whole objective of this is to bring the government closer to the citizens yeah, and breaking down those boundaries. 
by leveraging data and knowledge about your citizens and, and getting, reaching the right decisions and helping them work, you're improving your relationship and actually getting closer to your citizens. So they were the two questions you didn't ask. Okay? Then, really, uh, uh, how do we motivate people to change? That was the, um, which was the whole theme of my, my pitch in a way. And, and, uh, in, why hasn't they changed? What is the emotional barrier to, to the BSP uh, and progressing forward? I would argue two things. Okay, one of them, have they got the value? Have we done a good enough job of explaining what the end result will be and what that will mean not just for BSP but for the country as a whole? And are they convinced enough, right up to the top, of the value of, the, of going through that change? Let's face it, change is painful. There is always a pain of going through change. So can we motivate them enough to go through the pain of change to get to that end game and, and break down the barriers to help them progress? Um, and then, sorry, the last thing, there was the value and then there's the skills. There's the education and the awareness going along the process. And maybe we haven't done a good enough job of educating people about how they can do it uh, and, and improving the skills within the government space so that they feel ready and able to do it. So I'll take that on board. Great. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, Thank there, We're, we're going to go on to the next topic. I think we covered that extremely well. So uh, we have a new player on the stage, uh, mm -hmm. meet everyone, I.B. Fernandez, who is our resident data scientist. And just mm -hmm. like Rissell works in fraud and she's hardcore and gets her hands dirty, Ivy does the same, and she works with a lot of our tier one customers in the financial space, uh, and as well as throughout the public space. Now, Gerard did a great job of his 80-20-20-80 flip, but we haven't really spent a lot of time on the new 80, right? So now that you're not spending so much time on data, Ivy, can you tell us a little bit about how people and individuals who work in government, who are not natural modelers, data modelers, statisticians, or or mathematicians can use tools like SAS's VDMML to, to start to really analyze that data that's now ready for them. Well, what are some of the things you're seeing and what are some of the key success factors that uh, they need to know as new business users in the modeling space? Okay, so thanks Patrick for that very great question. So basically analytical modeling is one, or basically that's always part of the wish list of every organization or company that we are talking to. But what is analytical modeling, first things first? So, and I'm sure you heard a lot of presentation with respect to modeling, predictive modeling, machine learning, analytical modeling. But basically, to define it, it's just getting your data using different data sources to create an equation, or basically a model, that will predict certain outcomes or predict your decisions in the future, okay? So a lot of organizations wanted to do that, but it's not, they are not yet capable. Capable in terms of what? They don't have the right or appropriate analytical tool to do the predictive modeling, or they don't have statisticians or mathematicians to do the model, okay? Or they don't have both. But what's good with SAS is basically we're spending a lot of our revenue into our R&D for continuous improvement and development of our product. If you have seen SAS in the past, or if you studied in, the, in our partner universities, I'm sure you're familiar with the SAS coding interface. Who are familiar with the SAS coding interface? You need to do the data, the input, and so on. 
but if that is still the base sass you have in mind, I will tell you now, a lot has changed, really. So we now have a very sexy interface, very easy to use software, which is drag and drop, wherein you can do data exploration, your insighting, and especially your predictive modeling. And that's basically just a tip of the iceberg now. What's good is if you have that capability and you have the domain expertise to input it to the process, that's the perfect scenario that we're seeing. So what I'm talking about is basically the analytics life cycle that we have. So you start with the data, you prepare your data, you have the data management, you have the cleansing. This is the first stage, right? And then you go to discovery. So discovery is basically your reporting, your dashboarding, your ad hoc analysis, your forecasting. So somebody asked about forecasting. You have optimization. And then after you did this, so you put this into deployment. And that's very important. What I mean by deployment is be able to use the output that you have. Because if you don't use it to make better decisions, it's just a classroom exercise sort of things, right? So we want to have this continuous process of analytics lifecycle, okay? And be able to integrate it in the organization. I think this is, I, I'm sure you want to talk about it, okay? So this is the first step that we can leverage on. So you government organizations, we can talk, you can talk with us, with SAS. We are very ready to have that partnership with you guys. We have the best analytics software. You have the domain expertise in each and specific organizations that you have. So we can start the collaboration from that. Great, thank you, Abby. I think you know another thing to expound on is we're very much focused when we design our software about you spending less time on less value work or tasks and really spending more time where your domain experience is. And so when you see the interface that Ivy was actually talking about, if you are in the central bank or in law enforcement and have only a, a policing background, that's fine for us. We, you are the ideal user for our software. We are designing for you because we don't know your job. We want you to demonstrate your domain experience, not your math skills, not your statistical. And so we've taken that element out of the equation with our drag and drop style. We even have wizards that allow you to pick certain models that are more fit for purpose. You'll hear some of our competitors talk about, just give us your data, we do, the, we do all the modeling and spit you back an answer. And while we do the same thing, what they stop at is the thing called interpretability. They don't bother explaining to you how they came up with that conclusion. They just expect you to pick one, two, or three. But we will give you a log. We will give you something that you can read and go, oh, if my boss comes to me and it says, explain how you came to this conclusion, you can articulate very clearly, this is for the auditors, very clearly, this is what I did and why I did it. Right? Where our competitors, they don't do that. They just give you the answer and they say, trust us, just trust us, right? So huge differentiation. All right, so let's, yeah, go ahead. Just add on to that. I think the key element here also is about democratization of the analytical process. So it's not the IT who runs all the analytics. It is the users, the business users who now can run the IT, the analytics. And how? It's wizard driven, as he's mentioned. And some of the tasks of data extraction, data quality, transforming the data, 
all of that are result driven and very simple to do with the GUI, with the user themselves can do. Then the user therefore owns that project. Earlier it was all the IT owning the project and they don't understand the business language and the business piece user don't understand code. And therefore many of the projects don't go through. But now each one owns their own project. And cross-functional collaboration between IT and business users enable large-scale analytics to be run across the organization, enterprise-wide. So a lot of day, I think these days, using Excel and PowerPoint is a lot more complicated in a lot of ways than doing a modeling tool. So that's how, that I'm willing to put some money on that and willing to, to come show you how we, we can do that extremely well. So let's take another question from the field. Come on, step on up, get your book. Hello, good afternoon. I'm Dennis from the ICT. Uh, my question is addressed to Sir Asif Tagdawala. Sir, based on your presentation earlier, what is the best advantage of having artificial intelligence of things in the, in the government industry? So uh, you're talking about how you want to roll it out or which are the areas where you can uh, kind of implement the AOID? How to best implement the AOP in the government industry? Yeah. So again, so let me give you an example. Uh, it's again use case based, needs based approach, right? So uh, let, let me give you an uh, example in a, in a government sector itself. If you are a utility, right? and you want to run AIoT programs, uh, so you know, smart meters, or you probably want to have some other in uh, uh, the, the water, if you want to have drones, you know, in, in your water pipelines, you want to kind of go and understand the leakages, right? Now, you could send out camera uh, attached to drones and use imagery to understand where there are leaks, right? You could do that, or you could yet have pressure and volume sensors fitted across pipelines at various uh, intervals and yet measure those and yet record leakages. But what what is the uh, element of organizational structure you have in place needs to be looked at, right? If you already have skilled people in place who can, from from the existing data of flow and, uh, flow and volume, decipher and analyze and understand that there's a leakage, then you don't need to send out a drone. But if you do not have those skills, already available to you and you want to kind of step into that area of having you know immediate real-time leak detection technology then you could have a drone based uh, camera fitted in and send out a drone use analytics image uh, use uh, uh, capture those images use analytics to recognize those images and understand leakage patterns and send out your crew both ways succeed and both ways people have implemented and both are analytics driven processes because both have sensor data, both have got uh, some kind of data. I mean, this is images from camera and that is sensor data from uh, uh, devices. It, it's about how you want to tackle a project based on the skill sets, based on the uh, investment uh, appetite, based on the terrain around. So if it's a mountainous terrain, you definitely will not be able to install sensors. Uh, like fluent temperature, they are going to get spoiled at some point of time. You do want to send out maintenance crews, they are going to kind of uh, uh, be difficult to replace. The drones are a better option, an easier option. Right? So it all depends on the environment around you for you to implement a use case. Yeah, and, and I would expound that crawl, walk, run is 
very important. You heard from me this morning talking about when you kick off your analytic project, start small, start fast, and start iterative. Doing AI and AIoT is a highly iterative process. You want your scope to be in a constant state of improvement uh, and a constant state of growth. If you try with your one shot at the very beginning to create some very complex AI, you're not gonna show results, you're not gonna be able to know where you are in measurement, you're gonna get frustrated, you're gonna lose the support of your stakeholders, it just goes bad. That's why we hear about a lot of analytic project failures. So crawl, walk, run is a very simple and very applicable way of thinking about which AIoT problems are we trying to solve and how do we go about doing it. And focus on your outcome. What do you want to achieve? And based on that, there will be an investment into AI technologies. Not go for AI technologies and then see what is the outcome. I mean, that would be pretty cost, uh, the, you know, I mean, nobody would absorb that cost as a budget, right? I mean, no board would approve that. Yeah. So, look at your outcome, try and see the data gaps. If there are data gaps and there are certain AI elements that you can, AIoT elements that you can incorporate into your analytics exercise, go ahead and do it. All right, let's go down to the next question on the panel. Draw, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick on you now, if I can. Uh, let's address some urban myths if we can, if that's all right. Uh, I think there's this urban myth that data always has to be 100% correct. That having lots of data and uh, using the reporting data, I always have to be 100% of the time correct and having too much sometimes is a bad thing. Uh, it's a bit of an urban myth. Um, and it's not necessarily always wrong, but it's always necessarily right. Could you maybe shed some light on sort of the layers and contextualization of, of how we think about data from a data quality perspective, uh, a data velocity perspective, mm. and what good and bad things are with data. So the, the particular example you're talking about is forecasting? Yeah, probably. Or leveraging predictive analytics to, to forecast results. Um, and what if you get it wrong? And, and there's two types of wrong here. What if you underestimate or overestimate in some way or another? Um, and so, uh, it all depends on the ramifications of getting it wrong. That, sure. that, that's the point at the end of the day. Um, you know, if it's people's lives that are at stake, then getting it wrong can be pretty serious. If it's if it's money or, or some something else that's arguably less Long important, then it might you can be more flexible about it. Um, and in some cases, uh, getting it wrong can be the right problem to have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know this sounds crazy, but you know, we're in a world of business development. You're in, you've got metrics that you have to perform against. Sometimes. Getting the wrong forecast and actually overachieving on what you forecasted could be a good thing. You know, if you if you are forecasted on bringing revenue into your organisation and you forecasted 100 million pesos and you accidentally bring in 200 million pesos, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, well, I mean, I, me as a business leader, I think that was a good thing. But then, if your staff were being rewarded on that. And, the, and bonuses are being paid out on overperformance. That could be a bad thing because then, then could there be some exploitation going on and deliberately underquoting of the numbers to exploit the system to, to, to overachieve. So it really does all depend on, on what it is that you're forecasting at the end of the day. But I'll just wrap up by saying that uh, at the end of the day, of course, the closer you can get to 100%, the better. And. Uh, the role of analytics to do the predictive modeling must play 
uh, or it must have a huge value yeah. in that perspective. And then machine learning nowadays, the whole concept. SAS will, more and more over the next year, you'll start to see how AI will be used to refine models. Okay, So machine learning new models. So that cyclical process, maybe you will get it wrong. Maybe the predictive process will get it wrong the first time. But how you got it wrong and why you got it wrong can be fed back into the model and it will be constantly refined and right. adjusted as time. Yeah, so a component of that then, Gerard, I think what you're saying is, you know, before you get started, you really have to have a good conversation with your leadership about what is our data culture and how do we handle data. When we create data, when we analyze data, what is the testing point, what is the validation point by which we make what I will call criti mission critical decisions on data. But everything before that, it's okay to fail. Maybe even it's okay to fail fast and fail often because that is the nature of innovation in many ways. But if your organization does not have a prescribed and specific and well understood and well accepted, supported data culture about how you work, how you experiment, how you fail often, but when you stop doing that and you go, everyone's committing to this, everyone's clear this is a point of fact, whether it be a forecast, whether it be how to drive a car, whether it be what our revenue is for next year, it doesn't matter. Once you establish those rules of engagement about how your culture, your organization deals with data, then you get released of sort of this stress and anxiety level of, oh gosh, this data looks right, but gosh, I just, in my tummy, I, I don't know how to put my career behind it. Well, guess what, my boss is okay because he's, he understands there's a, an era of tolerance that's actually acceptable at this stage of where we are at with our decision making. And that's a critical element. Uh, Ivy or Asif, do you want to jump I, in? I just want to add one thing, maybe it's a little unrelated. In the morning I heard someone mention data as a new currency. Mm. Anyone around here? Yeah. yeah. Many people. Someone here. Yes. Okay. Many, it is a new currency, but remember, currency needs to be changed. <laughs> it gets soil, it gets torn. So data. I mean, don't think of it as a lifetime asset. What data has been generated historically need not be continuously stored. If you don't need it, there are normal patterns, like I was saying, it's a normal pattern, don't spend money on saving that data. Therefore, the edge to analytics, edge to enterprise analytics that we kind of showcase, right? So be very careful on how we kind of manage data projects. Yeah. So to add on to that, so basically, I think you saw Asif's presentation that you don't need to start just with the data, all of the data in your organization. Basically, you can just select a portion or a sample of that data, start doing the data exploration, start doing the analysis, and then coming from the insights, you can discover that there are some missing data. So this is the time that you put some investments on the building the data storage or the data warehouse that you have. But the most important is you have the insights, you have the value, wherein you can make decisions, you can make out actions out of that. So don't um, wait to complete the data warehouse or to collect, say, three years worth of data before you do the analysis. By that time, your data is basically old, old now. Old. Yeah. So the insights is not relevant to the people, right? Absolutely. Great, let's take another uh, question on the floor. Just go ahead and step to the mic, first one there. Gets the, gets the <laughs> oh, a uh, gentleman back there, Bicha, sorry. Yeah, I am uh, Karen from Land Bank. I like Jared's uh, slide of the Philippine challenges earlier. So clearly, SAS has been uh, doing R&D in the Philippines and the Philippine government. Going back to Jared's slide, uh, how do we 
operationalize the analytics behind those uh, challenges. So I think this is one of the takeaways that we would like to know this afternoon. Thank you. May I? Yeah, please. Okay, so how do we operationalize the analytics? Yeah. That was your question there. Yes, uh, so we're just wondering, uh, do you volunteer uh, data to uh, our policy makers, to the lawmakers, the Department of Finance, or the NEDA knows, uh, knows about this? Uh -huh. Because uh, most of us are uh, IT people here, and uh, we also provide the data to our, to our boss. But uh, how does SAS partner with the uh, government? Okay. So I'll, I'll clarify for a start that we do not provide data. Um, SAS is not a, a data source as such. Maybe we should be, but we, we certainly will help get actionable intelligence from the data. So if you ask how do we operationalize analytics, uh, my whole focus today has been use cases. Uh, all the different use cases that could be of value to you. We would to operationalize, we'd focus on a particular use case that you would need to get results from and deliver those results for you to at least establish that the machine works for, the, for that use case and then expand it out to other use cases. In terms of data, it's very much what data you can get. Of course, we'd be, we'd be happy to work in a consortium and, and help get the data together. But frankly, that, in my view, for the government, that would be DICT's role. Uh, it would be to get the data together from all the different areas. And then we will gladly partner with them to help deliver value back from that data and actionable intelligence to help you operationalize it. Um, I, I know that's not the right answer to your question, but uh, I'm hoping that at least clarifies where SAS is in the picture. Gerard, I think there's a bit of confusion, so let me see please, if I can please, try. Because yep. I think there's, uh, I think he looked at you, you did such a good job on Indeed. your presentation that I think you may have slightly misconstrued something. Okay. When, when you deal with a software vendor like SAS, and this could be true of Tableau or, or IBM, we as vendors never ever store your data unless we have a service engagement with you on a project to deliver a particular outcome. Your data is your data. Even though you've licensed our software, it's your data. We never copy that, bring it home to Cary or bring it home to Singapore and go, ooh, I should share this with this upcoming senator. That would be highly, highly no-no. That would end all of our careers in one fell sweep. So we don't use that data. However, what I think you saw because of Gerard's slide that did a great job of articulating the challenges. Every panelist you heard here today, including myself, the information we built our presentations from is from publicly available data. You heard me reference uh, the United Nations. You heard me reference McKinsey, who spends five to ten million dollars a year on studies working with governments to find out what are the problems happening in the Philippines, in Korea, in Singapore, in Dubai, and all those, all these places. So. We have a vast wealth of information we collect from multiple journalistic and, and physical studies that are occurring, but what you saw was not a reflection of our projects that are, we're on serving the Philippine government today. Um, so don't confuse the, here's how you do analytics and this is your data with the, the data we presented because these are, data is in a lot of ways different in that context. So hopefully that, that helps a little bit. And, and we have delivered the solutions that I've mentioned, we have delivered elsewhere for other clients in different forms, and we've had some, a lot of involvement for the last 20 plus years with the Philippines government. But absolutely right, Patrick, we never take your data. Uh, we never 
we don't host your data or, or serve as that function. So if you're asking, how, am I operationalizing data that we have harvested in some way through our experience in the Philippines, I'm afraid the answer is, is no, we don't. Yeah, and the use cases he presented where there was a customer like uh, C leads, uh, CJ leads, mm. they allowed us to. In fact, they, they're happy for us to say, hey, here's, mm. here's a specific use case, share this with as many people as you can because we want it to, to propagate and do data for good. So that's the exception to the rule of, of that statement. And operationalizing the uh, analytics is, I mean, part of the SME and Dobin expertise that we bring in. We have, as uh, Gerard has mentioned, that we have implemented it in so many places and we have the Dobin expertise. We have SMEs who have worked in that segment and know how to present a workflow to now put, it, put the analytics into action into your operations. Right? So we can bring that in, but I think it's apart from that, from the data, data perspective, everything is hosted into your uh, systems. Nothing is uh, nothing works on size. Second, another question from the floor. Come on up, sir. Quick run. <laughs> Actually, uh, my question is uh, partly a touchy issue because uh, in terms of budgetary concerns, uh, I, I we don't have any money. Anyway, by the way, <laughs> I'm Aldrin from the uh, Central Bank. Uh, but I am in the data center. So uh, uh, my question is uh, a little bit uh, touchy because uh, in terms of budgetary constraints, uh, an end-to-end -end, uh, analytics uh, uh, tool being offered by SAS is a good thing to have, right? But then uh, if, you are, uh, if you are still in the starting stage and uh, we still need to justify uh, on, uh, on the value uh, of, the, of this tool, uh, and we are still in the learning stage, uh, the usual answer uh, to us or recommendation is uh, on the use of uh, open source softwares, mm -hmm. uh, which are being taught even in schools. And I think we have a data scientist here. Like, yeah. uh, She's going to answer this, by the way. She's going to look right at her. Get <laughs> your mic up. Like the uh, Python or, or R. So, uh, mm -hmm. so uh, how can we uh, justify the use of uh, SAS? Uh, if, uh, if we have this uh, budgetary concerns. Thank you. That's all you need. Okay. That's why you're here. <laughs> yeah. So, as a data scientist, yes, I agree. A lot of organizations are now incorporating open source, R, Python, and other open source. And really, we're not treating them as a competitor. Mm. We complement them. But what's not being realized in every organization that we're talking to that are using open source. Basically, as I mentioned, we have the life cycle, analytics life cycle. You have the data, you have the discovery, and the last part is the deployment, okay? Yes, you can do data and discovery in open source. But what open source cannot do is basically the deployment part, which is the most important because that's basically putting the insights and the model or basically the equation into production for you to make better decisions. So based from my own experience, so we work with a company using open source, R. Yes, they build the model, but they can internal applications that they're doing. Because they want, for example, just a brief example. So you created, say, a model that will predict the probability of a certain customer or loan borrower that he can pay, okay? So it will give you a decision whether to approve or not to approve the loan, okay? 
So given that situation, so you build the model in R, but you don't have the capability to integrate it to your internal system. So how will this model be run in the internal system is the challenge. Yes, you build it in R, but what's good with SaaS is we have an end-to-end -end platform. We can do the data management, we can do the modeling, and we have a seamless integration to each and every applications you have in your internet organization. So that's the missing piece that organization is not looking, the deployment. Yeah, and I'll, I'll put on my IT nerd hat since I've worked for 20 plus years, and I'll just say you have to have both, F frank and simple. Uh, we have many use cases of customers who are coding in Python, using SAS to run time that engine, to execute it, but then SAS all has these great tools that automate the ability to just push buttons and push that code out to productions and to intelligent applications. We have a very robust API layer, application process, uh, programming interface layer that allows you to actually build very smart devices very quickly. So it is a significant game changer. Too much effort, unfortunately, gets focused in on either data or on the modeling part, but never on the, the deployment part. And let me give a real example. If anyone here likes to play with uh, their home automation devices, maybe Google, maybe Alexa, go home and ask your next device Google or Alexa, Alexa, tell me about this product on AWS, Amazon Web Services. And when it fails, that's a model. That model is failing. It's a text model. It's failing. And you can bet that Google got a little ping back at their back office in Seattle that says, how come we can't answer questions about our own product? We need to update that model. It's in production. We need to, we need to update it. We need to make it better. We need to improve our customer experience. Then keep on asking it every day for seven days, ten days, five months. And you know what you'll find out by doing that is, how long does it take Amazon, one of the most technically advanced companies in the world, to deploy and redeploy and upgrade their models? That's exactly what you're gonna find out, ironically. And this is why SaaS pitches all the time about analytics orchestration and the importance of analytic deployment. So to get back to your question, I understand when you're in the experimentation phase and you're slow moving and doing the development, Justifying ROI can be somewhat difficult for a product you may be buying that has a five-year run rate. We can work with you on that, commercially speaking. All of our AEs are here to say, look, at the end of the day, we just want to get you value. And so let's talk about how our business model, our pricing strategies get you value, and more importantly, let's get the experts who are here to actually get you to produce that value as fast as possible. That's the key aspect of it from a, both a technology level as well as at a commercial level. This one time. Sure. So basically, you're using R, you're using Python, you can run it in SAS. Keep and going. do the comparison of the results using Python. Yeah. So we just mentioned about the open buyer platform that we have. And also note, when we talk of end-to-end -end platform, that doesn't mean that it always comes as an end-to-end -end package. This is a modular package. So mm -hmm. there is a data management package, there is an analytics package, there is a visualization package. Right, so based on your needs, you could tailor it, and these are seamlessly integrated. So when you go for one and you go for the other, a few months later or a year later, they're seamlessly integrated. And I'll just say, I heard two parts to your question. The first part was the challenge of starting a project and getting to a point of re getting value out of it, uh, and the upfront investment that would be needed and justified, and then the pain of change and waiting until you get to that value at the end of it. And then the second question was, 
Well, um, the, the, uh, it's a lower entry point with open source, so the pain and the changes, is, you don't have to justify it. You can get going with it more easily. So I think we've answered the second part. The first part, you know, the world is changing and the way that these solutions are offered is changing. Uh, so have a look at things like results as a service. Have a look at cloud-based solutions where you don't have to do that upfront investment in building the solution. Give it to the vendors to do. Let them create the, the solution or leverage solutions they've built elsewhere for other clients and offer it to you as a results as a service type concept. And then you don't have that pain. Okay? And you don't actually care whether they're using open source or closed source. They're taking the, the responsibility away and giving you the results at the end. Of the day. Thanks, Gerard. I'm sorry, we got to start to wrap up and we got a couple more questions. So one in the back there. Um, I think we have probably two more questions of that one and then we'll have one more. All right. Um, good afternoon. I'm Mark Laurente. And uh, we basically tackled or talk about um, analytics in organization, especially in the government. Now I want to go to the analytics uh, that pertains to the public, general public. Now here are my questions. questions. All right. First, do you think that in the Philippines, the public in general are a statistics and analytics country and or ready. Second, can analytics change general public pers uh, perspective? If yes, how? Lastly, how can analytics translate be translated to favorable public action? Um, yes, Abby, yes. you wanna? Yeah, let's have let's have because uh, we're short for time and not. I think all of us want to answer this, but I'm going to have Ivy and Asif answer. Let's you and I sit out on this, Ivy, because you're local, so you could probably speak, and then Asif will, will get you some time. So I'll answer the first question. So is the Philippines ready for analytics or statistics ready? So to give you a background, SAS has university partners. So we have the university, colleges, schools. Um, who are using analytics and coming from that I'm sure a lot of students are really now in analytics so they're studying it in the university so that when they go out when they graduate so they can provide analytics to the company the organizations that they will join so basically yes, the answer is yes. okay uh, the second part of the question uh, is the public uh, going to be uh, happy with the analytics and whether they convinced with analytics, right? So let me just cite an example view. Uh, look at your electricity consumption at home, right? If your electricity consumption is being shared out, it's today with the utility. If the utility sells it to a private player, an energy consumption, uh, energy savings organization, who does an audit, right? And compares that, benchmarks that against uh, some of your peers and uses your demographic data of the size of your family and the income of your family, and says you are probably uh, having an excess consumption than what you should have. And then they come to your home, do an audit, and then show you the means which you can save money on your monthly electricity bill. And all that is run through analytics. If they are able to show you the benefit and you are saving money, I'm sure you'll be convinced. And it's not just one case. There might be many such cases. Security of homes, leakage of uh, water. I mean, there could be many digitization and government services. Right? There could be many such use cases which once the citizen sees the benefits and understands that there's analytics running behind it, I mean, they would probably also be very open to even sharing their data. Not only uh, uh, you know, appreciating the analytics but even sharing their own data. 
And I don't remember the third question. Sorry, I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> 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 so, can anyone remember the third question? The third question, if you could just repeat. Hello, there. Uh, well, basically, you answered my third question is uh, how can analytics translate to favorable public action? Yeah. Oh, and I think that I was going to say in your second question, there was a little bit can analytics influence the way people think? Yes. Um, can analytics change general public perspective? If yes, what? How? Yeah. Well, I'm saying uh, the bad case is fake news. Yeah, bad case is fake news. And, and, and obviously, good analytics with trusted resources, whether they be trustable uh, publishing companies, trustable uh, government results and documentation, er, you know, it's all behind more intent than it is about technology, right? Analytics, in a lot of ways, is the tool and the mechanism and enablement. But if you've got bad intentions, you can use it as a sharp stick uh, to, to beat someone, or you can use it as a sharp stick to help someone enable walking down the street. It just, it really depends on human intent. And, and I think there's a philosophical aspect to your question which is, as a society, as a Filipino culture, we have to start to become more cognizant of being a data-driven culture, which means how do we go about processing information and determining we're operating from a point of fact more than we're not. And in, a, in the time of elections, we all have our biases about mm. who we should elect and for what reasons. I want you to ask yourself, not anyone else in your family, not your friends, but do I know the real true fact, is this a reference source, and what have I done to actually make sure that I am? I've been in this conference now almost eight hours with the rest of you. I guarantee you I am eight hours old of news. I don't know what's going on out there. So if you were to ask me something about uh, what's going on with the Philippines' GDP, I don't know. I have an opinion, I have a bias, but I would caveat saying, well, eight hours ago I read the newspaper, but I don't know what's happened in the last eight hours. So we have to start thinking like that. That's the data-driven culture of idealism. And I think when we do, we'll actually start fundamentally seeing more truths and less fakeness and less propaganda get as much attention as it does today. I think so. we just need to go back to our uh, basics. I mean, when we are buying uh, personal care, hygiene products, you don't look at a you know, company that you name, the brand, you know, uh, what they stand for, the values. If you could just replicate the same thing while reading surveys and you know, reading analytics, whether this company is really uh, stands for some values, has been doing analytics for a long time. Similarly, you know, purchasing behavior, right? Not fly by night, you know, vendors. Someone who has a standing in the market, and then you try kind of trust those. Otherwise, there's no need to get swayed by surveys that are published everywhere. Yeah. Okay, one more question. I believe the this lady here in the green was, was the first one. Yeah. How does SaaS complement or how competitive is SaaS with the BI or analytics of other platforms like Oracle and, and Microsoft, including its affordability? Sure. So if you guys don't mind, let me take the Oracle one if you guys want to get into the Power BI and, and the other areas. So um, Oracle, uh, just a quick history. Uh, well, let me just be completely transparent. There's a lot of parity, and parity in this case means commonness in the analytics industry. Uh, out of the, just the vendors you mentioned to us, you know, and then there's a bunch of open sources. There's a gentleman over here from the Central Bank talked about. Well, there's a lot of parity in terms of features and capabilities. So I like your question because you're asking us succinctly, tell me what the differentiator is, and I will. Oracle, for a large part of their existence, has been two things. It's been uh, a database company, and it has been an infrastructure company, especially when they acquired Sun Microsystems. It's only really been 
uh, in the last, I'd say, probably under 10 years that they've started to dabble and really build out a portfolio for what I would call advanced analytics. And advanced analytics is descriptive, analytics, predictive, and prescriptive. So the differentiator for me, number one, is we're a math company. So outside of being an analytics company, we're also a highly well-employed PhD math company since the very beginning of our inception. Dr. Goodnight, our owner and founder, is a PhD. SAS was founded on a mathematical grant from North Carolina State that he had where he built his first model to help improve crop yield uh, production. So there's a significant difference between both company as well as technology in terms of what we embed and how we design our product. They both do analytics, so that's the parity. But as far as the other comparisons to Oracle, they, they've invested more R&D dollars into being a database company. And I can show you exactly, in fact, you've heard us say it like 10 times now, uh, how much R&D dollars we've invested in analytics since 1976 plus. So I think that's a significant difference in focus as well as in execution. So who wants to take uh, the difference between Power BI and Ivy? Do you want to take that one maybe? So Power BI is basically a data visualization tool, and we have a data visualization tool, but with exploration. So we have visual analytics. By the name itself, it has analytics embedded, not just reporting, not just visualization, but we have analytics. So I think that that's the game changer. When you're talking of reporting, dashboarding, data visualization, it's just looking at what happened in the past, right? But if you have analytics, you can look at what the future will look like. And basically, I think that's the main differentiator that we have. We can have more sophisticated analytics in terms of SaaS products, but Power BI is just one product, right? So SaaS, we have a lot of products from A to Z. So, but basically the main comparison with Power BI is basically the visual analytics. We have more compared to the Power BI. It's just for reporting, and yeah. we can do exploration and analytics and visual analytics. And I'd add sort of the same kind of logic with my Oracle example. Power BI is less than five to six years old. Uh, most most consumers of Power BI are big enterprise companies with. Uh, relationships with Microsoft under ELAs because they own Office 365 and frankly I can tell you from experience because I did this at GM they give it away for free mm. so it is a free product with Office 365 and other licensing Outlook and all the other Microsoft products you get so they're trying to become a, an analytics player and they are and they're doing a good job of grabbing some momentum but again they're they're the new kid on the block believe it or not when it comes to um, uh, you know, the robust analytics that Ivy was, was articulating. So what was the third tool, ma'am? Oh, those were the two. I'd just like to add to this. Uh, when you're evaluating any vendor, I mean, you should look at the breadth. And that's what I was talking about, that there are certain core capabilities. You may not be using computer vision and natural language processing now, but remember that you might need it in the future. And if you are looking at a vendor, who has only one capability that's Power BI, when you have a visualization, you're missing on a lot of other capabilities. So you, you go to a vendor who has all the capabilities, probably you use only one or two of them in the current use case, but you know he is going to be a partner with in, in your larger strategic growth plan. Great. Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the panel. I want to thank you very much for all the great dialogue and all the great questions. You've been an excellent participation. Uh, we're going to throw it back to the host from the event to uh, kick us off to the next thing and wrap this thing down. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much to you.
I hope you liked episode 5. Please don't forget to subscribe at Instagram, Facebook, and Spotify. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye.